Hello, this is Murad Mahmudov, and you're listening to Crypto and Grow. Hi everyone, let's Crypto and Grill. As usual, it's Crypto Dantes here with Stig of the Pump. How are you, Stig? Do you know what? I'm pretty good, actually. Nighttime outside, so it's getting dark, but still in my corner office, you'll be glad to hear. Excellent, very good. And out of interest, no, you're not in your corner office yet. How does it? How long does it take to get from the basement? How many 5 a.m. starts throughout your life does it take to get out of the basement and into that corner office with the good view? Mate, the struggle's been real. It's taken time. Although I'm starting to feel more and more like Harvey Specter, so that's always a positive. You're nothing like Harvey Specter. That's amazing. <laughs> okay. Constant. It is a humanity. It's a constant struggle and a search for meaning. Um, and in that search for meaning, um, in a seamless segue, we have a fantastic guest with us today. So enough horsing around. Let's get into it. Um, we're super excited that he's agreed to do this with us. Uh, it's Murad Mahmudov. Murad, say hello. Hi guys. Uh, thank you so much for the invite. Glad to be here. No, look, thank you for coming. And um, mm. um, for those that you, that, that, for the people that are listening that don't know who you are, uh, would you mind just giving a, a quick intro to yourself, uh, your background and, uh, and what you're doing at the moment? Yes. Um, so I've been in the crypto space for several years, sort of been analyzing um, the fundamentals, the technicals, a lot of those sort of statistical analysis. Um, myself sort of come from the finance world as well. Uh, originally am from uh, Azerbaijan and Russia and uh, sort of been studying and living in America for uh, a little bit for the past couple of years. Uh, lived in China, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong during the previous sort of uh, Bitcoin bubble in 2013-2014 and have sort of been in the rabbit hole ever since. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, to sum that up, sounds like you're omnipresent. I like it. Um, <laughs> So um, we have recently heard the episode that you recorded with Anthony Pompliano on, on his pop, uh, podcast, and we, we thought we'd reach out and see if you were willing to do this one, and, uh, and we're glad you accepted. Um, we just before we get into it, we we thought this uh, episode would be a nice prequel um, to um, to that pop episode because what we try and do to uh, for our listeners is to help them understand Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, uh, distributed ledger technology, and and how it all hangs together, um, and how the space as a whole might evolve over the next few years and it's we're not necessarily offering advice or answers just um, views and things that we've learned uh, over time so um, we're keen to, um, to to hear your views on that uh, I'm just wondering based on the pomp episode what's the fallout been has there been any reaction and has anything changed for you since then because that seemed to uh, go viral very quickly uh, yeah, a lot of people sort of been reaching out a lot of people have been um, saying that they really enjoyed the podcast. I'm just happy to sort of spread the message, happy uh, to use sort of uh, Anthony's platform to evangelize the space further. I have no doubts at all that this is the future of money and the future of finance in almost every regard imaginable. And I think that, um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of up to us to accelerate the transition. Okay, so that's a nice uh, way to start then. So if we can um, if we can step back and, and start to put this in context then. So before we really uh, talk about Bitcoin and, and kind of segue into the uh, almost some of the key concepts you discover and you, you discuss in the pomp episode, what we wanted to go through was what is money and the origin of money um, and what it means to humanity. How did that um, move into the gold standard and, and why did that become so important um, in our lives um, and then the progression from there into fiat and Keynesian uh, principles which led to fractional reserve banking and the current state of, of money today um, so uh, if, if you were able to guide us through a path on that kicking off with uh, what is money that would be um, I think really useful I'm gonna grab my Ovaltine and kick back and yeah <laughs> yeah 
get some biscuits <laughs> and uh, put some uh, comfortable shoes on because this one uh, may take a while. So yeah, over to you, Murad. Um, what is money then? Yeah, for sure. So um, there is a lot of uh, debate in the both the academic, anthropological, financial world uh, regarding what money is. Uh, the way I see it is that money itself is an emergent phenomenon which comes about uh, because otherwise uh, it is difficult for a growing groups of people to engage in any kind of commerce, business or exchange uh, directly. And it essentially money comes about uh, across space, time, history and culture as a way to solve what is commonly called a uh, double coincidence of once or some people even call it the triple coincidence of once because essentially you have one person wanting one thing another person wa wanting another thing and sometimes people add even the dimension of time into the equation but essentially uh, money is typically the most liquid good that uh, is used in exchange and uh, there throughout time and throughout space there exists a natural demand for something that is extremely liquid and extremely saleable. Uh, and typically, uh, according to most economists and historians, uh, the most liquid commodity historically has become uh, or ended up becoming money. However, uh, once again, there are many uh, theories regarding the origins of money, and we can, of course, discuss some of those as well. Okay, fantastic. That's uh, that's really useful. So, so Let's assume then um, that, that money exists and there's a need for it. Um, and so how did it then come to pass that gold was um, was so important in our lives and, uh, and we eventually adopted the gold standard? Yeah. Uh, so prior to the existence of any digital technologies, of course, uh, we had to, and even prior to the existence of fiat currency that we currently use, uh, people had to use uh, one of the objects that exists essentially uh, as currency, and um, there are there are credit currencies, but there are also money, and uh, we need to sort of uh, delineate the difference between the two. But for now, I'm just going to start with the money, and the way I define money is something that is a present good that is used as currency, and you can think of gold, silver, uh, wheat copper, uh, salt, cows, all of these things have been used as money uh, in, at different uh, places and at different times throughout history. Um, now, I align with uh, many of the Austrian economists in believing that throughout history, typically something, an object that has the highest stock to flow ratio ends up uh, becoming money. And I think that before we delve into fiat, the uh, concept of stock to flows is probably the single most important concept that uh, I would recommend any listener sort of take away from this discussion. And uh, essentially, it is the following. Um, people, when it comes to money, both uh, from a game theory perspective, both individuals and the collective as a whole uh, wants to both store their wealth as well as use in exchange an item that is difficult to produce. So let me define what stock-to-flow ratio is. Stock-to-flow ratio is um, essentially the amount of an object that is already available relative to the amount that is being added to the existing stocks every year. Uh, so gold is roughly 1.6% per year. That is sort of the number that it has been averaging over the past 10 to 15 years. So every, so every year there's uh, an additional 1.6% um, gold added onto the current existing supply um, every year. So that the, the total quantity that's added is 1.6% in addition to that existing quantity. Is that right? Precisely. Okay. Um, and so... It is, it has, throughout history, we have learned that it is dangerous, um, both, both for you as an individual inside a society, but also for you as a village, as a city, uh, as a state, or even as an empire mm -hmm. to use, uh, something as money, which is less 
which has a lower stock to flow ratios than let's say another civilization. And as an example, um, so what happened was throughout coast, coasts of Africa, uh, West Africa in particular, a lot of tribes used certain uh, glass beads mm. as money for many centuries. Uh, at the same time, uh, European travelers were uh, typically using silver at the time. And what happened was uh, because essentially uh, the African population at the time still didn't venture into other parts of the world, uh, they still didn't uh, see uh, or didn't find, sort of didn't consider other items that could be available as money. And what happened was um, beads were indeed very scarce locally. However, uh, because the Europeans already had superior technology, uh, they noticed that they could produce uh, these kinds of glass beads back home. So mm -hmm. what they've done is uh, they noticed that the Africans are using these glass beads as uh, money. And they have either um, have gone to sort of other parts of the world to find the exact same or similar kinds of glass beads at a cheaper price or went back home to Europe to produce them um, relatively effectively and efficiently. And what they essentially managed to do is come back and slowly hyperinflate the local villages and essentially buy out all the goods that they needed very, very cheaply. Uh, in, in the same, essentially doing any other party or even other kinds of Europeans themselves doing something like that with silver would be much, much more difficult because silver essentially has the second highest uh, stock to flow ratio uh, other than gold in the world. Uh, uh, and, and just to jump in there, so is that why then most countries across the world moved to do the gold standard at some point? It's because it was, it was the thing that had the, the best stock to flow ratio. Yeah, I, I believe that what I'm describing is like one of the major forces that led to uh, that happening. And uh, essentially, it's like, I, I believe that we, we need to think of it as experiments. And people across the world, uh, the ancient Aztecs, the Chinese, the Russians, the Europeans, they all use different forms of money. And through these kinds of um, trial and error uh, across space and time, uh, humanity as a whole has realized that gold and silver were the best options because essentially, uh, evolutionarily speaking, the people who've used uh, silver and gold survived and thrived, while uh, the other other sort of uh, nations, groups, and civilizations that used inferior stores of uh, wealth and money, which are which sort of their quote unquote enemies or competitors could produce more easily, they essentially uh, did not thrive. Okay, so there's so there's a so there's a possible link there then between inflationary currencies and civilization development. Is that fair to uh, assume? For, for, and that's sort of that's sort of kind of where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's yeah, that's kind of the idea behind Bitcoin is that it's it's an even harder gold. Essentially, you can think like one of a thousand ways. Uh, Bitcoin is extremely multidimensional, but one of a thousand ways to think about Bitcoin is a is a harder gold. Uh, we call it gold on gold on steroids. Uh, gold 2.0, neo gold, synthetic gold, synthetic commodity money. There are many ways to think about it. And uh, Bitcoin in and of itself uh, is very interesting because it lends itself to many uh, narratives, lends itself to many sort of like quote unquote approaches and mm -hmm. angles. And it, it, it can sort of fit uh, many different theories and paradigms at the same time. Uh, but I you, think like the simplest, yeah, the simplest way to think about Bitcoin at the moment would probably be a superior goal. Interesting. Sorry. So you mentioned, uh, you, I just wanted to pick up on one thing that you mentioned there, which I certainly hadn't heard a lot before. Um, and I doubt many of our listeners are. So when you refer to neo gold, what, what do you mean by neo gold? Yeah, I think like essentially it's a gold for the 21st century and sure. onward. Um, I think so when you research, when you research money, uh, the, whether it's tangible or whether it's paper or whether it's, commodity, uh, all those like nuances, they matter less than the stock to flow ratio that I've described. Mm -hmm. um, and I, we need to focus on the stock to flow ratio. Um, so gold is much higher than silver or palladium or all other or other metals. However, um, Bitcoin is even is, is, is going to have in a couple of years an even higher stock to flow ratio than gold. 
Uh, so I believe right now Bitcoin's annual supply inflation is somewhere around 3.7% per year. Mm-hmm. If you, if for simplicity's sake, we go off of the 21 million cap number. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, um, so gold is still 1.6, 1.7%. However, uh, as you know, uh, Bitcoin experiences a halving every um, four years. And technically speaking, a Bitcoin stock to flow ratio is increasing every 10 minutes, but slightly because uh, the stocks get uh, this like the the every 10 minutes block reward is mm-hmm. fixed, but the amount of existing above ground, so to speak, stocks is growing. So technically, uh, Bitcoin's stock to flow ratio and hardness or soundness, as they call it, is improving every 10 minutes and as well as particularly sharply additionally every four years. Okay, so um, just just for the um, for people that perhaps may have missed on on block rewards, then block rewards are those um, effectively the payments made to people that are securing the network, the Bitcoin network. Um, you may know them as Bitcoin miners, but people that are committing um, energy, resource, uh, computing power to secure the network and to confirm the transactions on the Bitcoin network, they are rewarded in a block reward, and that's given that's paid every ten minutes, um, and in four years' time or sorry, in, in 2020, which every four years, um, that reward halves. So I think that, that's what you're referring to there. Yeah, so stock to flow is like stock divided by flow. Yeah. And mm-hmm. because the flow is decreasing, uh, sorry, because the flow is decreasing, you're essentially uh, like dividing the existing stockpiles by a smaller number, which makes like the stock to flow ratio uh, higher. Gotcha. Uh, B- Bitcoin is very interesting because like gold has had essentially somewhere between 1.5 to 1.8% for the last 20, 25 years. So mm. like it's to flow ratio is like relatively stable, mm. but it, Bitcoin is Bitcoin is like very unique in the fact that it is strictly dis- disinflationary going deflationary. And so it's stock to flow ratio will end up being infinity. Okay. Wow. Okay. 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 So, on, um, so on the stock to flow ratio point though, so when we go through a halving, does that mean it's going to halve from about, th- I think you said 3.6 or somewhere like that to what, how quick's my mass? 1.6, 1.7. So it would be about the same as gold at the next yes. halving. Yes. So we, according to our calculations, we expect Bitcoin to be sounder than gold by 2021 or 2022, which is like super soon. And I like, I think uh, okay. what I'm talking about right now, uh, un- I, like, unfortunately, it's like under discussed in the space. Yeah. Uh, even like even there are even like hardcore Bitcoiners who like don't really understand sort of the monetary nuances who focus on payments or focus on um, even like uncensorability or unseizability focus on unfreezability. Like those are like really, really cool perks. But um, and I'm like I'm a bit contrarian, I guess, in, in the sense, although like there's a growing community of people who, who, who's un- who understands this. Um, like uncensorability is cool, unfreezability is cool, but uh, it really is the like extreme hardness that I believe is going to be the reason um, which is going to make Bitcoin find itself in institutional portfolios, uh, increasingly so in the next 10 to 15 years, which is what matters. Amazing. So I can see how animated you are about talking about this um, just from the webcam. I'm going to I'm going to put the uh, safety car on you and um, bring that Formula One engine back and just slow you down a little bit because we'll come on to Bitcoin shortly. Let's just plug that gap there between the gold standard and and where we are today, because we've had sessions uh, previously with Safety and, um, and with Caitlin Long. Uh, and we've, we've, we spoke to Pomp as well. And I think so, you know, gold standard was was a great thing for the world for humanity mm. uh, for our development um why did we move off it and and why do we find ourselves now in this situation of massive debt and um uh, and hyperinflated currencies around the world what are your views on on how that happened and why it happened yeah really good question so uh gold being like a physical tangible commodity money even though it does lend itself to um because it is hard to move and because what often happens with gold is what we refer to as the centralization in volts problem, uh, something that Bitcoin doesn't suffer from as well, but we're going to get come back to this. Um, essentially, compared to fiat money, a gold standard system 
um, is it, it's much more difficult and it, it essentially puts a ceiling on the amount of money expansion and over indebtedness that can occur. Um, even though uh, we have moved off of the gold standard since 1971, uh, Uh, obviously, given money is an extremely important thing, uh, there is an incredible amount of wealth, metaphorically speaking, being parked in the asset that is money, that is cash, that is the US dollar and other fiat currencies. And it it is obvious that there are there's a tremendous amount of power and privileges that come from being able to issue money from virtually what can be described as thin air. Um, imagine if, so money is typically a, an instrument or a commodity uh, which is most demanded. Uh, wherever you go in the world, um, like a hundred dollar bill is probably something that is the, like the most liquid and probably something that you can manage to spend, be it in Japan, Africa, or Brazil, etc. It's something that everybody wants. And imagine if you have the power to create more units of something that everybody desires. Uh, it, it literally lends you near infinite amount of power. So you're, so you're so sorry to dive in. You're, you're effectively there, coming back to your West African beads, glass beads um, metaphor there, or, or a scenario example, um, because that's where we are in the modern world. It's, it's effectively the modern equivalent of um, going back home, creating loads of these precious beads, um, and without sort of the knowledge of the mass population, um, using them as currency to acquire goods, services, whatever you want that you value, and uh, through sleight of hand, shall we say, um, <laughs> devaluing the native currency of that uh, population. Precisely. If you stretch this metaphor, everybody who holds fiat currencies is mm. the African here, and the yeah. central banks are the Europeans. But but so, whilst the difference here is, whilst everyone has been so clever at marketing it in a different way, because everyone keeps on talking about how uh, your pound is worth more, you can buy more with your pound now, uh, your pound goes up in value, but actually... It doesn't. It goes the opposite way. So it's been the most amazing marketing uh, ploy as well. Well, I, like I think fiat currencies have probably been, uh, as you've correctly described it, the biggest sleight of hand like ever to happen on earth. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I think I think it's it may so, be safety in that outlines this in his book, uh, the Bitcoin Standard. I think um, effectively what that gives you. So I think before you had with the, with the gold standard, you had a currency that everybody owned um, and you couldn't inflate it. But if you actually link policymakers, central banks, governments, mm -hmm. what you kind of eff effectively do that perhaps most people don't really realize is you give infinite power to that ruling party because um, if you insist on taking taxes and making that currency legal in that territory or that country or wherever it, um, it's used as, uh, as money, you can print as much of it as you want. And um, you, you will benefit early um, because it wouldn't wouldn't have filtered down throughout to the rest of the uh, the economy and the people that uh, that are using it. So the people that are most affected are the people that um, that are using it without knowledge of its true value. Precisely, and I think like like essentially everybody in the world is going to realize this, and it's only a matter of time. And that's why Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as a whole are still massively undervalued. Um, Like it's it's like it to me it's it's not if it's when um, hmm. I think governments will find it increasingly difficult uh, to compete against these things uh, because it it's by definition uh, with whatever product they offer and I consider money to be a product just like anything else um, it's going it's it's likely to not be as competitive as decentralized peer to peer currencies. And uh, you've noticed uh, uh, exactly right that essentially uh, having the privilege to create money and to print money uh, gives essentially increases the size of government. And that is why I think a lot of sort of the uh, Austrians and the libertarians, they um, 
think fondly of late 19th, early 20th century Europe when the gold standard was still in place. And um, due to its very nature, it put a cap on the size of government and to the extent of government reach. Uh, because uh, essentially you have, you have taxation, which is direct taxation, but when government expands the money supply, it is essentially a form of stealth taxation. And when you have something like a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard, you can only fund government and mm. all of the bureaucrats and all of the activity, all of war, all of prisons, etc. You can only fund that through direct taxation. And increasing direct taxation uh, is much more politically unpopular and unpalatable and harder to pass than simply printing money. Uh, and that is precisely why. Uh, if we were to return to a gold standard or better yet move to a digital currency uh, standard, then um, it is my belief that the size of government would shrink somewhere between 30 and 50 percent. I, I wholeheartedly agree. So, so let's dig into that a little bit then. So, so, um, so if if we assume that we move we we have moved so let's let's skip the knowledge and um and information that you drop in the pomp episode maybe we'll come back to that one a bit later but let's assume that the world has moved to adopt a bitcoin standard um and that all the central banks in the world um store bitcoin instead of gold or a mix of bitcoin gold and um, and physical assets whatever it is in their in their vaults to um uh, to secure their uh, their monetary policy um say that's in place why would that reduce the scale of government and or the role of government at all? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, the size of government depends on the funding that is available and the revenues that are available to government. And so in that world, direct taxation would probably become the only source of funding. Um, I think it it's important to say that I don't think that government currency is unethical or immoral. I think it's completely legitimate. What is unethical, though, is banning other forms of money or is monopolizing fiat currency. And that is the unethical part. And um, I believe that all products over long periods of time, uh, free markets and competition uh, essentially force all products and services to become better. And I think that uh, that must apply to money as well. Um, so Bitcoin is essentially the first successful alternative currency that we have had since gold. And um, you, you might know what, what has happened to the founders of Liberty Reserve or eGold or uh, DigiCash, Mojo Nation. Those, all those products, all, all those alternative currencies, they either failed or their uh, founders are, uh, were thrown in prison for obvious reasons. And the power of Bitcoin is precisely its global distributed nature. And it is likely that sort of the game theory around Bitcoin and central banks will end up, assuming it will prove itself to be uh, secure enough from a um, technological perspective. Um, it will, I believe that at some point in time, big asset managers, sovereign wealth funds and governments themselves will realize that it's easier to simply be among the earliest major participants in that market rather than be left behind or try to fight it. Because destroying Bitcoin, if it's possible at all, would require all governments around the world to be working with one another. But we know from history that from a game theoretical point of view, they are adversarial. Mm -hmm. They uh, essentially are in constant competition with one another. Some of them even like hate, dislike, or distrust each other. And essentially, Bitcoin feeds from that hate. It feeds from that distrust. And uh, it is trustless, or to be more appropriate, trust-minimized money. It is like silver. It is the money of enemies. And, and I'm saying that in the sense that it is money that is designed for you to transact with people who you don't trust and for no intermediaries to be required. And I think that, once again assuming that it will prove itself to be robust from an engineering perspective, which I believe that it is increasingly looking like it will. Um, it, it, it is definitely here to stay and it will continue to sort of absorb larger chunks of the like money market, which is like the third or the fourth single biggest market in the world. It is, it's, 
so I think even if it did, if it didn't fix some of the engineering problems that it's currently got, I think its position in the world has now become inevitable. It's something that, that can't be stopped. Someone said the other day, there's a, there's only two things that we've ever created as mankind that can't be stopped. One was the internet, and the other was Bitcoin. And it's so true. There's a level of inevitability about what is going to happen with this technology, um, which is uh, awe-inspiring and fascinating in how it's been created. Um, sure. one of, one yeah, of the, like the, the genie, the genie is out of the bottle, so to speak. So yeah, the exactly. idea is there's so many smart and intelligent people uh, in the space, increasingly entering the space because it's becoming evidently uh, it's becoming evident that this is like one of the most exciting that we will probably go through in our lives. Yeah. So uh, w- one of the things I just wanted to pick up on, which is really, really important in all of this conversation, which I don't, I think we touched on slightly, but could you give us a view around uh, going back to fiat currency and sort of its early demise that we've started to see? Um, the importance of fractional reserve banking, kind of what is it? What role does it have to play? And what came about with the 2008 crisis? Yeah, um, I personally, uh, so once again, just like the fiat currency example, I don't think that fractional reserve banking per se is uh, wrong, immoral, or unethical. There are schools of thought within uh, Austrian economics sort of and other unorthodox schools that even uh, consider it legitimate and useful. What is uh, what is essentially once again wrong is... Um, legal tender laws, like monopoly laws, outlawing sort of alternatives, and uh, like central banks acting as lenders of last resort, because it essentially creates uh, these like conflicts of interest where um, like firms or institutions or essentially structures that are unsustainable or that are bound to fail. uh, Instead, the, the government uses the taxpayer money or the newly printed money to sort of step in and save uh, certain, once again, failing institutions, which in the pure free market would have failed or wouldn't reached the size or, 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 the, or, or the problematic uh, position that they're in in the first place. But because of it, it is sort of the government selectively um, supporting certain uh, sort of industries and people and uh, and like these kinds of kleptocratic elements that are particularly problematic. Um, there were a lot of forces at play in the 2008 crisis. Easy money policies of the uh, early uh, zeros uh, and the mid zeros definitely had a huge role to play. Um, however, uh, once again, it is not the fractional reserve banking per se that caused the 2008 crisis, in my opinion, and it's not the fractional reserve banking per se that is unethical. Uh, It is um, like the banking sector and the currency currencies as a product, uh, both not being a free market uh, in conjunction, uh, doubly so. And I think that that is that is where the problem lies, in my opinion. Okay, that's fascinating. So I guess that kind of gets us up to date with where we are today. And, and we had a good conversation with Caitlin Long a few weeks back um, regarding um, you know, the state of global debt levels and the fact that many currencies and many uh, countries may well at some point actually have uh, a balance sheet approaching zero um, and start to experience negative interest rates. We're already seeing that in, in Switzerland, for example. Um, where does Bitcoin fit into all of this this new digital cash this digital money has evolved um and i think one thing that uh, we didn't touch on or you slightly touched on a moment ago is people don't really realize that bitcoin isn't the first attempt at this this is the fourth or fifth iteration over the last 20 years um that this has been tried and nobody's got it right so it's not a, c- a case of it being a new fad and something that's um just arrived and will soon go out of fashion this has been tried for 20 years and it's only just um succeeded uh in 2000 and uh, nine successfully launched and has now gained 10 years of, um, of of solid track record. So how does it fit into all of that context that you've just set there from from the origins of money, the gold standard and uh, and where we are as as a, as a, a human race, I guess? Yeah, so I, I think that Bitcoin would have succeeded even if like the 
we didn't have all these gigantic uh, looming financial and debt crises uh, simply because it is a superior money, both from a monetary point of view as well as from a technological point of view. Uh, however, um, essentially, this is the way I think about it. Like, even if we leave the uh, looming and the current systemic problems in, in, in the global economies, uh, I think like eventually, uh, once Bitcoin reaches a certain size, which like I think like is in at least in my subjective opinion is inevitable, even if you only consider sort of the speculative wave or and the speculative cycles. Once Bitcoin, let's say it's a two or three uh, trillion dollars, which is like roughly half of our, or a third of gold, right? Uh, people will simply think, okay, should I park uh, my cash? Just and I'm just I'm not even looking at stocks and bonds yet or houses or or anything else. I'm just looking at like the or the currency section of their portfolio, right? Should I park my wealth in something the supply of which is expanding at four to six percent per year, uh, or should I put my wealth somewhere that is expanding at zero point five percent per year, right? And I think like people once again like people would notice this, not to mention all the other perks that are embedded not in Bitcoin the money, but but Bitcoin the like the network, the Bitcoin the system. And uh, like I think like just bigger and bigger allocation there is just like inevitable. Uh, I think that like if if a lot of people who currently have let's say a hundred percent of their position in uh, like a mix of dollar and euro, for example, uh, what 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 is going to happen in the next ten years is the following, in my opinion. We're going to see more and more people who hold both fiat and crypto in their cash balances. And even if it's only like 90% fiat or 10% crypto, you are going to see more and more of that. And this is going to be this transitionary period, precisely that, that is going to take uh, Bitcoin to to a much more liquid, saleable, recognizable, and stable level. Uh, this is like why we like, keep talking about store value, because like I, me and many other people believe that the store value, at least in this case, must, pre must precede medium of exchange, because... Mm -hmm. Uh, for medium of people like prefer their day-to-day -day cash, i.e., their day-to-day -day medium of exchange, to be stable and liquid uh, for like for convenience and for reduced volatility risks and reduced anxiety. And for that, we simply need Bitcoin to be bigger. Uh, like the the bigger Bitcoin grows, the less volatile it will be. Uh, so that's precisely why I don't think we should be focused on spending or focused on payments at the moment. We should be focused on security. I'm going to try and butt in before my friend does, because I know one of us is going to want to ask a, a big question. So what are your views then around the velocity of Bitcoin? Because the more and more I start thinking about this is that people constantly argue that Bitcoin will never be a payment type because it doesn't have the velocity speeds that it needs to. But then if you actually compare it to the things that it's really like, like gold, like silver, they never transacted at a high velocity. In fact, the velocity that it transacts against those is infinitely better than than. Uh, other things that's come before it and it's only really against fiat currency which is either worthless or non-existent does it not compare from a transactional pace perspective so it'd be good to be good to hear your thoughts on the importance of velocity in the network yeah for sure that's an excellent question and something that needs to be discussed every single day uh people who compare uh bitcoin's throughput with things like visa or mastercard are or, or paypal whatever they are completely clueless because Bitcoin is not competing with PayPal or Visa. Uh, Bitcoin is competing with two entities. That is, the central banks. Is Bitcoin is competing with central banks for money issuance, and it is competing with the Bank of International Settlements and Fedwire for uh, for money settlement, big money settlement. And in that sense, it its throughput is already approaching those levels, and it will grow even more. Uh, you need to. This is the important part. What people don't realize is that things like Visa or MasterCard or PayPal or Venmo, they are effectively layer three or layer four on top of the global financial system. Uh, they are like the global financial system is built on like the central bank and then you have the dollar and then you have the commercial banks and only then do you have like these credit card companies and like things like Venmo and PayPal are even built on top of that. So the, those things that like people often compare them to, they are effectively like layer three or layer four systems. It will not be Bitcoin base layer that will be competing against Visa or PayPal. It will be things like Lightning Network or potentially even things that are built on top of the Lightning Network. And those things will have extremely high throughput. 
people like believe that eventually like lightning networks throughput will essentially be near limitless and so once again the bitcoin base layer itself at least in the way it's architecture right now it's poised to become more of a large um settlement network where massive uh, hundred million dollar billion dollar settlements are uh, occasionally settled on uh, every couple of days or every week etc Okay, so so that's um, huge. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's before you while you capture your thought. It's one of the, my biggest light bulb moments in this entire process in this entire space is when I suddenly realised that all of the payment networks and everything don't work on actual transactions of things. They they work on creating a bucket which they then net off against a system. So all the transactions go like Bitcoin. All the transactions go into a bucket and then they net off. And then there'll be one big transaction that will happen, which is the whole network may spend $100,000 and over a course of time. And actually, the net is only $10, actually. And that's what it ends up because that's the net of the transaction value. And as soon as I realized that, I was like, shit. For so sure. Money, so money yeah. networks don't actually transfer anything. It's just yeah, like Bitcoin, Bitcoin is trying to become very robust base money. Once you have a robust base money, I believe like dozens of kinds of payment networks will uh, emerge around it. Yeah, and I think we've said this before on um, other podcasts that Nick Carter puts it quite well in uh, when he um, uses the analogy um, that Bitcoin is is more akin to um, container ships transporting you know, massive trans. Um, uh, massive amounts of goods around the world um, rather than the final mile in your local post office. Um, so it's container ships, not small parcels or envelopes. Um, and I think that's a really nice analogy for people to have in their heads about how to think about Bitcoin. Um, one thing that I wanted to sort of uh, just challenge you on a little bit here is uh, if, you, if you're happy to uh, give your views on it, is how does this happen? How does adoption happen? Because, you know, we're sitting here December, beginning of December 2018. Um, you know, Bitcoin has crashed from $19,000 down to 3500 or something today. Um, you know, there, there, there's still a lot of volatility. It's still heavily manipulated. Um, you know, it's not really seen with uh, much trust and a lot of people around the world ridicule it. And, and certainly, you know, I've got a lot of close friends that uh, that ridicule um, Bitcoin for being, uh, again, a fad and, and, um, and a bubble. How do we how do we see it grow? And um, and what, what does the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of adoption, uh, that, what does that path look like and what might the spark be um, to take us there? Yeah, for sure. Um, so. Just returning to one of my previous answers, uh, I said that Bitcoin will likely, like, would likely win even if like no crisis happened uh, in the traditional world. So I think that like it is because it, it has the intrinsic properties and the qualities of a superior money. It's like the best uh, money product that has ever been created. So um, because of that, I, I believe that we would have like growing allocations. However, um, the coming so right now, the world is at an all time high of debt. I believe it has recently reached 240 trillion in total. Um, I believe it is it is impossible. It is essentially impossible to pay that without either defaults, uh, jubilees or printing money and uh, any one of those or or rather super fast economic growth which is unlikely so these four are the only options and nothing nothing else and so um like defaults debt jubilees or uh inflation which is the most likely in my opinion um governments will probably uh, print a lot more money uh to at least pay uh those debts nominally and I think that essentially the, the this this kind of credit crisis, this kind of deleveraging, will lead to a uh, a growing distrust in current monetary and financial systems, mm -hmm. as well as um, and and it's important for Bitcoin to simply be there at that moment. People will. Just like they view, just like uh, interest in Bitcoin spiked during the Cyprus Bank crisis, uh, it's going to spike like a thousand times bigger 
when what we are talking about happens. And now it may not be next year or it may not be like in three or four years from now, but it will it, it will definitely come. And <laughs> as long as essentially Bitcoin is slowly monetizing, uh, I think that uh, and essentially like Bitcoin, as long as Bitcoin's price is growing like not day to day, but like like every every two or three years, as long as the like the price level and the respective bottoms are higher, uh, then in my mind, Bitcoin as a monetary instrument is monetizing, and like it is already succeeding as a long term store of value, and more and more people and but actually, if you look past like any um, time frame above uh, twelve months, Bitcoin has been a remarkable store of value, uh, and. Uh, I think more and more people are going to see that the cycles will elongate and but their amplitudes will uh, essentially like narrow down. I think as Bitcoin grows, the volatility will um, decrease and uh, it will become more and more usable with time, both once again from a technological as well as from a monetary perspective. And uh, like that's why people will essentially allocate it. Uh, and not to mention uh, the fact that Bitcoin will compete against uh, $25 trillion that are uh, parked in offshore bank accounts, uh, as well as all the payment use cases that will uh, emerge like atop it. So do you think there's a do you think there's a spark initially that could kick this uh, whole thing off? Is it um, because one thing that I've just been um, uh, thinking about this week, um, there was some some press um, coming out that uh, I think it was Vladimir Putin that said, look, you know, the U.S. dollar is um, it, it is currently the um, global uh, reserve currency. Right. But with all these sanctions, it's not a question of us moving uh, away from the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is moving away from us. So for countries mm. like um, Russia, Iran, anyone else experiencing some kind of sanction, the US dollar becomes an ineffective a currency as uh, as a as a global reserve. So actually, they these countries are at the state level perhaps incentivized to find another um, currency to to use that isn't quite as uh, subject to um, uh, tariffs or um, or these um, embargoes. But then on the other side of the coin, you have a people-led approach. So the, what I was thinking in my mind is there a state-led approach and a people-led approach that might spark this? Because from a people perspective, you have Venezuela, Argentina, Zimbabwe, the, the hyperinflated countries um, where their own currency has stopped working. So they're having to use something else as money and uh, to avoid um, either their, their, their stores of value or their, their finances being eroded in value um, or returning to the barter economy. So, you know, in these countries, we are seeing a spike in, in Bitcoin. Um, is there one, both, or a mixture of everything that you think might lead to that um, that adoption uh, spark? Yeah, it's quite eerie and interesting how um, the articles and ideas of finding like alternatives to dollar have become increasingly common in the last couple of months and years, as I'm sure you've noticed. And this is when you talk about sanctions, this is precisely what I meant by Bitcoin being the money of enemies. Um, when I say that the privilege to print money, in this case, the US dollar, gives its issuer a tremendous amount of power, not only from a financial perspective, but of course also from a geopolitical perspective. Essentially, money is a weapon. And the global settlement and payment systems like SWIFT and others are also can also be weaponized. And they are being weaponized. And precisely because of this, precisely because of this distrust and inconvenience that's created for other countries, for good reasons and bad, um, this will, without a doubt, be one of the driving forces why uh, people will allocate to these things. I, I always say that like third world and second world dictators will be like among the first ones here, uh, without, without a doubt. And... Uh, and I think like Bitcoin will emerge as a credible competitor. I think that uh, before Bitcoin succeeds, we will likely see uh, China, Russia, uh, perhaps in a partnership, perhaps separately, try to issue or offer sort of their own product offerings, both on the payments as well as the monetary side. However, uh, like Bitcoin will still be here. Bitcoin will still be growing and strengthening and will position itself as a competitor in sort of this whole geopolitical um, competition as well. It's fascinating that you think that those countries um, 
are going to potentially be the ones that potentially drive the move towards this because I've also got a little bit of a theory growing at the moment about what's going on in the UK and the potential of a no-deal Brexit, uh, which I'm not entirely sure how much you know about that. But there's been a lot of articles coming out from the Bank of England that if um, if we don't exit the European Union in the right way, we're going to head into another massive recession. And the UK is already at 80%, 87% debt to GDP. So another massive recession followed by another set of quantitative easing in the UK could very likely lead us towards negative interest rates by 2020, which would time very nicely with the Bitcoin halving and potentially could see the Bank of England actually look to something that's more stable to back their assets onto because they have to because they've got no other alternative. Just yeah, the, I, just I, think the theory. Like, I think like the I think like the governments will be the last to come, I think like. I think uh, like you, you've asked whether it's going to be like top down or bottom up. I think like for the foreseeable future is going to be more bottom bottom up. And like this is who will drive like Bitcoin success in the next cycle. And I, just like in the next five years, it will be um, tech savvy funds. It will be smart individuals, technologists, uh, like ex Wall Street, ex financier people who like see the potential. And it will be um large asset managers making small allocations like these 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 are the kind of five six stakeholders that will be um that will be there and uh like perhaps like the people who need bitcoin the most will unfortunately like not be the ones driving it for the next like for the next 10 years probably yeah. uh but essentially like what we need right now is uh asset managers both individual and institutional, making small allocations. That's that's it. That's all we need. And I I like I see it. In, I see it as a high high possibility. So we come back to uh, come back to Pomp there because uh, that's one of his favourite things to say. Is like that his his uh, whole mantra is to, to to get institutions to get off zero. You know, you've mm -hmm. just got to take some kind of position in this market because it's the best performing asset over the last five ten years. Honestly, like no matter how much of a Keynesian or a Marxist you are, not having even like 0.1% of your portfolio in Bitcoin, to me, is uh, is irrational. It's borderline irrational. Uh, so what for, it's for you? So essentially, if you run the statistics on this, for you to uh, for you to not hold at least 0.1% of your portfolio in Bitcoin uh, would require you to be. 99.2% sure that this will not succeed, which is like, which is like ludicrous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, as I said, uh, it's not like people aren't going to go from fiat to 100% Bitcoin overnight, right. but, uh, like this transition of Bitcoin being slightly bigger and bigger part of people's portfolios, everybody from like, from the middle class to like fidelity investments are Goldman Sachs, like, and everyone in between, um, this like this, this this slight allocation is what's needed right now, and I think that I actually think like like in we are going into a capitulation pretty soon, sometime in the next uh, two months. Uh, I think uh, like the smartest of the smart money is coming in right now, where mm -hmm. when other people are panicking, uh, they're coming in right now. So I actually am in the process of uh, setting up a fund myself, and uh, I like to joke that one of my edges. Is going to be precisely the fact that, like, unlike twelve of my friends who've launched funds in January 2018, I'm going to be launching a fund January 2019, which <laughs> is like I, I think it's going to be a generational bottom, or yeah. like not even. A, I think it's going to be like the cheapest time you will find any crypto asset, uh, like the cheapest it will ever be ever again. And essentially, like investors that invest in the first quarter or the second quarter of 2019. Uh, I think like that's like the best investment like ever. <laughs> so this is not this is not financial advice, but go all in, right? That's what you're saying. But it's not financial advice. <laughs> this is not financial advice. I am personally going 100% in. It's probably no, I'm actually going like 120% in. <laughs> so I so I've also got a close um a close friend of mine who did really really well in the last rise, and he's he's about to dive in headfirst into a fund with a friend of his, and. I think he's literally rubbing his hands day by day because they're like you. They haven't just launched yet and they're, they're close to it. And as soon as they do, I think um, I think everyone's going to go, you're absolutely batshit crazy because it's the worst time to do it. And he's probably, I know what he's going to do. He's going to be like, nope, it's the best. Yes. 
For sure, for sure. And like alpha is found when you are contrarian and right. Like you have to buy when so the best time to buy Bitcoin is even when evangelists like me are like actually starting to have doubts. Like that's when you want to buy Bitcoin. You know it's, I mean? And it's getting there, and it's getting there, isn't it? Yeah, it's getting close. No, no, like so, the, the the vibes, like the vibes right now, like even today, uh, are like really, really bad, and it's gonna to get worse. It's going to get to a point, and we even might have a long winter. Like it's possible that we're not gonna have like any bullishness until 2020. Like I am prepared for that, or yeah. even 2021. Yeah. Like I am prepared for that. I will be here, uh, like still 24 seven, uh, dedicated to the space. But um, like. Precisely when people have forgotten about Bitcoin, that's when you need to buy. And like that's where like people who will still be here no matter what and essentially make the investment uh, at the bottom, they will have extremely handsome profits. In, that's just that's my, that's just my opinion. So so sixth of December, twenty twenty, two years time. Let's get you back on. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm down. Look, so give us a glimmer of hope. What do you think the price will get to? Uh, I think. So, one hundred and twenty thousand by twenty twenty three. Oh wow! Okay, so that's strong. And what about longer term? So once we, um, so I think so. When just, we're all fifty. Yeah, the next segue. So the segue into the pump episode, um, where you start to really break down all of the uh, the steps and things. Um, and, and again, for those that um that have enjoyed this episode so far, go and listen to the uh, episode between Pomp and, and Murad. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. But what do you see the long term um price valuation for Bitcoin and and just a couple of assumptions underneath that? Well, it's it's difficult to price it in uh, like today's terms because by the time like Bitcoin will be there, the current money will be like worthless. So, <laughs> so one Bitcoin, so one Bitcoin will be one Bitcoin. That's how much. Yeah, it will exactly. Be I know. That's I love it, that. So so like uh, like in today's terms, like uh, anywhere between three to eight million dollars is possible. I'm buying. Um, I'm buying ten. Okay. In like okay, let, let's put it this way. Uh, realistically speaking, two to three million in today's terms per coin. I think it's absolutely possible. And, but, and what does I that think assume? Actually, that... I actually think just like Uber increased the overall demand for taxis, mm-hmm. uh, Bitcoin will actually expand the market for money because I think that um, central banks are owned by like Wall Street and commercial banks. And it's in their interest for the size of money to be small, for that money to get channeled into financial instruments, financial services, etc. That's why Wall Street and banking are such huge industries. Uh, those industries will actually shrink in a Bitcoin world. And the size of base money will actually increase. Because one of the reasons why both uh, the rich individuals and big asset managers run into like stocks, bonds, and even real estate is precisely because fiat money is crap. At saving at saving wealth. However, once the money that we have is great at saving wealth, there's no need for well, there's reduced need for all of that other stuff. And so that's why uh, if like all like narrow money today is 21 trillion, broad money is 95 trillion. Uh, but I believe both of those numbers or like like essentially the size of the money market will grow bigger just because of how good Bitcoin is. That's blowing my mind. Yep. I think we need uh, we need a break there. Um, Stig, uh, take us through. I think we need, I think, I think we need the, the barbecue. Take us through the barbecue <laughs> bit. Yeah. Okay. So if we were to continue this conversation for about another five hours over a set of hot coals and a nice cold beer, which we which I would literally love to do, uh, what meat? What would you bring along? Or what veg? What if you're a vegetarian? What vegetables would you bring and grill for us? Um. So like I really like like most of the crypto community is really into ribeyes. I'm more of a like a filet mignon type person, um, just like lean lean meat I like, uh, but like that's my that's my preference. I know a lot of people uh, due to a lack of fat they find it bland or tasteless, but I like I I, I enjoy that blandness. I'm a, I'm with you. I'm a purist. I'm a I'm a fillet uh, fillet man. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's very uh, it's like it's like very noble. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like that. I'm going well, to take that. Good. Well, when we do when we do our halving barbecue with, with, with all our guests, we'll make sure there's some Philip Mignon for you. Crikey. Yeah, you guys are you guys are in London, right? We are yeah, indeed, yeah. Yeah, uh I'll I'll definitely hit you guys up if I'm ever in the UK. 
excellent yeah. dinner is on us you you let us know um so look Murad, this has been absolutely fantastic probably my favorite episode so far um more than i was hoping for so um we have one final question for you before we finish um we are taking it upon ourselves just to do some investigative journalism work um and uh, we were wondering you seem to know a lot about this space you seem to have a lot of information around bitcoin are you satoshi no <laughs> <laughs> Damn, the I'm not convinced on. by your the face there. But okay, we will we will continue our search. Um, yeah. Do you have suspicions who it might be? Uh, I do have suspicions. However, I think it's it's better for Bitcoin if like no one knows. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, we had exactly the same conversation with Peter McCormack, and he yeah. said exactly yeah. the same. Yeah. yeah, we we don't. Uh, there's no need to uh, dig the corpse, so to speak. <laughs> Correct. Like, and what's one you- of the reasons. So one of the reasons why Bitcoin is strong is precisely like its leaderless nature. Yeah. As we have discussed, like the, the like uh, Liberty Gold, uh, DigiCash, well, DigiCash failed, but uh, eGold, like one of the reasons they failed is because they were centralized. Uh, and Bitcoin is a success because we don't like, they don't know who to kill, don't know who to torture. Or <laughs> rather, there's too many, there's too many of us now. And the number is growing. Once the number of users gets to like half a billion, there's just like too many people to torture. So it's like it's just difficult. There's not enough. There's not enough soldiers to catch. And so at that point, you might as well, uh, if you can't beat them, join them. It's like The Walking Dead with Negan, where everyone's Negan. I don't right, know. Right. I don't know what that means. That's so cult and strange. So uh, on that note, we should probably end. But um, <laughs> look, thank you so much. Uh, this has been uh, amazing. Um, any final questions from you, Stig? No, none for me, Murad. You've been a legend. Thank you. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance.